Hi, my name is Isaac, lead pastor at New Hope Foursquare Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our Sunday services are at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Find out more at www.inewhope.org. Good morning, my name is Isaac and I'm the lead pastor. And um, yes, as we begin this fasting, it's all um, based out of this, uh, this heart that we feel like God um, is wanting to stir within us. He's wanting us this year to apprentice to his presence, to apprentice to the presence of Jesus. So that is framing our whole direction as we walk through scripture and the various things that, uh, um, <clears throat> the various places that we will go. So, um, so yeah, well, that word apprentice, apprenticing is taking the long road of learning because the task ahead requires a constant mentor um, over the long term. That's what apprenticing is. It implies long term. And I think that is uh, what we are discovering as we become apprentices to the presence of Jesus. So um, we're going to discover this long road uh, this year. Now, would you guys be able to push play on that to... A smattering of applause. Mm. (laughs) Well, as we begin this long road of apprenticing this year, we begin in Exodus. Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and Genesis, and then Exodus. And this is the story of God freeing his people into the long desert walk. Yeah. Uh, We are, similar to the Israelites here, we are a wandering people out on a long walk, a walk out of the culture that we've been in, a walk out of the culture of power and prestige, a walk into the promises of God, um, and it's really a walk through the desert. Um, This journey is important because on this long walk, we discover that the systems and expectations that have been woven into us by our surrounding culture, they need to get worked out of us. And in the journey into the wilderness, we, we see that starting to happen. And that's why I use the word apprentice, because this is a long journey. And I am 24 years into my discipleship journey. Um, I decided to follow Jesus when I was 16, and so I'll let you do the math. (laughs) I don't know if I qualify for the young adults skating night anymore. I think we need to do something for the middle-aged adults. Yeah, probably not skating. Although we could have Craig film, and then it would be comedy hour at the... I think the crowd reaction would be like, whoa! Okay. <laughs> well, I'm just 24 years into this, and I told Donnie last week, as we were praying and fasting, and we had some time of reflection together, and I said, I, in some ways, I feel like I'm becoming a Christian for the very first time. Discovering this way of Jesus. You see, what I'm realizing is I am in Egypt, and Egypt is in me. And he has me on this long walk to walk out of that. And I think he's inviting us into that. Uh, this is hard for us. Anything that is, fa- or is not fast, immediate, anything that isn't immediately easy or inspirational even, uh, we, we don't like that. Um, we are efficient, results-oriented. We despair of long-term solutions at 21-day fast. I love it. One of our newer Christians last week commented to us, that was the hardest 24 hours of my life. (laughs) Great. That's wonderful. It's difficult to be on that journey, but it's so good for us. Because we are a culture, you guys know this, of fast food. I mean, it's amazing how, you know, quickly food is just right there. We are a culture of fast coffee. If you want to 
have appreciation for that morning cup of coffee, study the process of the coffee beans actually being prepared to be palatable to us human beings. It is a long process, and there are a lot of people that are doing a lot of hard work so that we can have coffee fairly quickly, you know, like right away. We are the culture of microwaves. Ironically, I put my coffee in my microwave this morning. Yeah. <laughs> we are the culture of the internet. We created the internet. We want to be connected faster. Information right now. We are the culture of smartphones where everything is instantaneous. Right now, you could be on your smartphone. Is that his real name? You know, like, <laughs> what's really going on here? Is what he's saying true? Fast, immediate. Anything long-term is hard. We also live in a culture that is convinced that we have transcended the ails of the past. We think we've really progressed. But listen, more than any real spiritual progression, moral progression, ethical progression, really what is true is that we live under the shadow of wealth which obscures the invisible brokenness. That's the culture that we live in, and that's what it is, that's what it is, that's what is true. <laughs> this could be an interesting message, everyone. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Listen, we're wealthier than other than ever. <laughs> See. <laughs> We are wealthier than ever, but suicide rates continue to rise. We live longer than ever, but have a smaller sense of purpose, more meaninglessness. We have more comfort than ever, but we are also more fragile than ever. The wealth of the West creates a false front. Remember in like Western's false front? This is a big impressive store, you know. Oh, not really, just a lot of plywood, yeah. This is a facade that creates the illusion of something much grander than what it is. This is why we go to scripture. We go to scripture and scripture helps us John Calvin said this, it helps us to put on spiritual spectacles through which our vision is corrected and we see what is actually going on. What is real? This revelation to us, it illumines a spiritual world that is often invisible to our eyes. Through scripture, we see that the world's facades, illusions, and imaginations are not only false and untrue, but that they are created and spawned and sponsored and perpetuated by Satan himself for the destruction of humanity. We are God's special possession, his special people that he loves and calls us his own. And the enemy wants to do and has done whatever he can to obscure that reality and to convince us to live according to lies. But scripture corrects us and reframes us and so Hebrews says this. I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the message talking about scripture. He says, God means what he says. What he says goes. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, scalpel cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, laying us open to listen and obey. Listen and obey. Nothing and no one is impervious to God's word, uh, immune to God's word, stronger than God's word. We can't get away from it, no matter what. So the scriptures, it, it, it's going right into us. And as we open God's word, that should be our expectation, that his word is going to get right into us and divide truth from lie. And... So we go to scripture uh, to begin. A.J. Swoboda uh, wrote a book called The Dusty Ones. 
He's a pastor um, from Portland, and he spoke at our church before. Um, and this book, The Dusty Ones, Why Wandering Deepens Your Faith, is all about the people in the desert wandering. It's a great accompanying guide if you want to pick up this book as we go through the Exodus story. He says about our cultural arrogance, as we really think that we kind of know, he says, with this historical arrogance, we've almost come to believe that the distant past should stay in the distant past. But in order to know where we are going, isn't it important to know where we came from? Can we talk about our purpose without talking about our beginning? And so scripture, as we understand more of the beginnings of our faith, we're going to see this has everything to do with us. It's going to contextualize us. And as I said, speak right to our hearts and divide truth from lie for us. And so we'll be in Exodus chapter 1. For 350 years, God had been silent. The first book in the Bible, Genesis, the last part is the beautiful story of reconciliation and redemption as the lost son, Joseph, ends up being the gracious rescuer of his family who had rejected him. Uh, This dramatic story brings the people of Jacob, or the people of Israel, um, into Egypt. And they live there in the land, the empire of Egypt. <clears throat> they live specifically in the land of Goshen. Now, to remind you, these are the children of promise. These are the descendants of Abraham. Abraham was told by God that all nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed, through his offspring. And if you've read the amazing story of Abraham and Sarah and how later in life she gave birth to Isaac, (laughs) that's a great name, (laughs) and then Isaac and his sons Jacob and Esau, Jacob's name is later changed to Israel. So these are the children of this promise. They're inheriting and they have this expectation passed down from generation that all nations of the earth will be blessed. And at the end of Genesis, they find their way into Egypt. And now we have 350 years later. Because over time, they were once welcomed as refugees, but the people of Israel began to be a threat to the power of the Egyptian throne, Pharaoh. And so he enslaved these people with harsh labor and then systematic genocide. We'll read more about that in the coming weeks. The first half of the book of Exodus is all about this showdown between the most powerful king on earth, Pharaoh, and the king of all kings, God himself. In these chapters uh, is where we will be and we will marinate and we will observe this cataclysmic clash between the two. And I think you know who wins, but we'll learn plenty. Now, it's interesting to me. It's ironic that God would lead his people to slavery in order for his plans to come about. God had led his people right into the place of Egypt. But as we shall see, God is always using the power of evil on itself. Through the story of Exodus, we will see how God foreshadows our ultimate salvation in the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Like his chosen people going through slavery so that his redemptive power overthrows evil and oppression, we see Jesus, God's son, 1,500 years later, walking voluntarily to the ultimate symbol of power in the Roman Empire, the the cross, in which anybody who opposed the power of Rome would be put so that Rome would defiantly say, we are kings of the earth. Jesus allowed himself to be bound, to be whipped, and then to be put on the cross. Although evil looked to be victorious again, Jesus passed through death and into life. And this is the story arc of the Christian life, that we are baptized into Jesus' death. We pass from from our lives as we know it. We give over that and we come into his death so that through his resurrection, we can have life. 
We come to expect that God will redeem us from evil and defeat evil through humility, through weakness, our humility, our weakness before him. See, God uses the momentum of evil to defeat itself. This way of God's redeeming power in weakness has been uh, described or illustrated using the ideas of judo. Judo, a martial art um, in which the momentum and the strength of the opponent is used for them to be defeated. This is the judo love of God. The strength of the enemy looks really powerful and then God ultimately and always uses the strength of evil for um, its own defeat. That's the symbol of the cross, God's great judo love. It looked like everyone had won or looked like evil had won, but in fact, evil defeated itself as God redeemed evil. And we see that in the story of Exodus as well. God using the momentum of evil against itself. In this series, we'll, we'll note this great showdown between Pharaoh, this oppressive dictator. We'll see how he self-destructs before God, how God uses his own evil against him. Through the series, we will note the showdown between the kingdom of man, the empire of Egypt being display numero uno, and the showdown between that and the kingdom of God. We'll see the stark differences between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. We'll find ourselves in that. Greg Boyd, uh, an author that I really enjoy, he comments on the difference between these two kingdoms, the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. He says, participants in the kingdom of this world, again, Egypt being uh, exhibit number one, trust the power of the sword to control behavior. Participants of the kingdom of God trust the power of self-sacrificial love to transform hearts. That's Jesus. The kingdom of the world is concerned with preserving law and order by force. We'll see Pharaoh do that in the story here this morning. The kingdom of God is concerned with establishing the rule of God through love. God who calls his people by his own name establishes covenant love with them. The kingdom of this world is centrally concerned with what people do The kingdom of God is essentially concerned with how people are and then what they become. The kingdom of this world is characterized by judgment. The kingdom of God is characterized by outrageous, even scandalous grace. What we'll see, the scandalous grace with the people of Israel, is there was nothing in them that merited this great favor of God. They were actually, Aaron says it, Moses says it, an evil and rebellious bunch. There was a whole bunch of Egypt in them, but it wasn't whether Egypt was in them or out of them that merited their favor or not. It was just God's chosen love, that same love that comes to you. Yes. So in order to be strengthened for this journey of the Christ follower, this journey of judo love, we have to be immersed in the presence of God. Remember last week we, where Moses says, he says, Lord, if we're not going to go anywhere without your presence, and you need to show me and teach me your ways. The presence of God is where we can learn the ways of Jesus, which are very contrary to the way of this world. We see throughout this book, the presence of God establishing his people. It's his presence that will establish us. We see God's presence changing Moses, changing his people, and changing the whole course of history. It's his presence. And so we will, this year, advocate and move towards being apprentices to the presence of Jesus. So I invite every one of us to see ourselves in this story. Like the people of Israel, we too have a rich Christian heritage that is full of the promises of God. That is true. But also, we like Israel, we've been oppressed by the surrounding culture. The surrounding culture has dictated to us what is important. The pure, the purity of the Christian faith has has been mucked up by the gods of this world, by the idols of this world. And many of us, we've succumbed to these idols. They're bigger than we ever knew that they were. We've succumbed to the demands of our culture, and we're living the results of really an enslaved life. And like the people of Israel, 
This is what is also true. We're destined for freedom. God secured our freedom when he gave us Jesus Christ, that through his death and resurrection, we can be free. But we must be learners to walk out our freedom. The scriptures are leading us towards freedom that comes to those walking in the spirit of love, the spirit of sacrifice and obedience as we sojourn from the death of Egypt into the promises of freedom. It's a journey of submitting to his love so that we become empowered for that judo kind of love. And we'll, I'm, I'm seeding that so that we can come back to that through our conversation in the book of Exodus. This is really key for us. The church in the West slings a blade of polarizing rhetoric oftentimes when it should be putting a sword away and serving in sacrificial love. The presence of God is what will enable us to be able to do that very thing because it seems so weak and so small and it seems so ineffective because we're so conditioned by the ways of the world. The ways of Egypt are in us and we'll see that as we go. So we will pick up today in Exodus chapter 1. We'll read a few verses and make some observations and then a few uh, verses more. So if you have your Bible, you can turn. If you don't uh, have your Bible, the verses will be on the screen. And yeah. So Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time, Joseph and all his brothers died, all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. A few observations. For 350 or 400 years, researchers say somewhere in there, that much time has passed since the redemption of Joseph and the family of Jacob coming into Egypt. 350 years at a minimum. That is a long time. 350 years from today is 1669. <laughs> That's how long ago that was. Does anybody remember anything from 1669? No? You don't recall? Very important things happened then. For example, the eruption of Mount Etna in Sicily erupted and killed 20,000 people. But you didn't know that. That was probably very important at the time. But you didn't know that because that's a long time ago. I bring it up for you to get a sense of how much time had passed and how much would have been lost over time, their sense of their identity, who they were. There is some evidence that the traditions of uh, their religion had been passed down. Abraham had um, instituted circumcision as a sign that these people were set apart for God, and there's evidence that that, that pattern remained. There's evidence that they understood the Sabbath, that God resting on the seventh day. There's some evidence of that. But they had been, also had been significantly paganized by the worship and the religion of Egypt. So much time had passed. And here's why. Egypt was impressive. Egypt was incredibly prosperous. The reason that Egypt was incredibly prosperous was because of the Nile River. The Nile River there stretching, it's a river that flows from uh, south to north, emptying itself into the Mediterranean there. That green uh, section up there is the Nile River Delta. It's a very fertile region, and here's why. In the south, 
when the rains would come every year in the rainy season, the Nile River, the level of the Nile River would flood tremendously. And so all of this fresh water would be sent from south up to the north and the whole region of Egypt, they built these massive irrigation systems. And each year, this provision of fresh water would come. So this land that was otherwise desert and arid and uninhabitable would, there would be opportunity for life. Not only did it bring fresh water, but the Nile River also b- brought fresh sediment. Sediment, that's how you say it, right? Not sentiment, sediment. That's <laughs> very, English is hard. <laughs> fresh sediment through which the, the dirt would be able to be planted in and bountiful, fruitful harvests would be built. So every year, the Nile would flood, bringing in this dirt. The Nile would flood, bringing in this water, and a whole massive, beautiful, impressive civilization was built. It brought so much prosperity to the region that over time, the prosperity, there is, you guys know, the pyramids were built as a result of these people, the prosperity in that region. It was beautiful, the art, the architecture, the learning, the smarts, the sophisticated systems of governance. It was a sight to behold, and the Egyptian empire lasted for a long time because of the Nile River. Also, ancient Egyptian religion, was very sophisticated. In ancient Egyptian religion, there's some sense that they had uh, understood the, the unknown God, the one true God, but over time, it was significantly paganized. The Phoenicians greatly influenced a lot of their religion, but all this to say, Egypt was impressive. Super impressive. And I think we need to keep this in mind as we continue through Exodus, because the freed people of Israel struggle in wanting to go back to Egypt. And this should do two things. One, we can have compassion and not just judgment for the Israelites. Come on, God freed you. Now you're saying you want to go back to Egypt? Yes, because the facades and the skylines of Egypt would have been fresh in their minds. This is amazing. And now we're in the desert? Also, we have to bear this in mind because we should see ourselves here. We should see ourselves here. That as God calls us outside of the promises and the hopes of our culture, the empire that we live in, the West that we live in, the wealth that we live in is so impressive. And as Jesus calls us out of that to not live according to that, we will find ourselves longing to go back to it because it's impressive and the lure of our cultural idols is incredible. We will always find ourselves wanting to go back to the place that actually bound us. Are you with me? Sobering. I told you we'd see ourselves in the story. Also the observation, the people of Israel had multiplied generation upon generation. They fulfilled that first commandment, be fruitful and multiply. And Hebrew women had on average four babies a year that would live. It's an incredible birth rate. The the researchers suggest that somewhere between 600,000 and 2 million Hebrews were now in the land of Goshen. But listen, The masses of people don't mean vitality. Masses of people don't mean vitality. I think of us Christians in our culture where it's easy to be a Christian, really. It's easy to show up to church. Certainly there's some cultural judgment. Some people might get snooty or think, why would you go listen to that preacher? (laughs) There might be some of that, but relatively, it's easy. And so there's masses of us. God had to take the mass of people to the desert so that a few would emerge who would carry on what he was after. And I think we are being called to be those few, those few who really allow his leadership to work the Egypt out of us and to be able to transcend what entangles us. We're not interested in masses. We're interested in the quality of the Christ follower. 
we feel that God is raising up a few to be able to take this true message to the ends of the earth. Because believe me, American gospel doesn't translate in other parts of the world because it's far too concerned with comfort and ease. And that's not palatable to the rest of the world. But the gospel of the Bible is very palatable because it's not concerned with comfort and ease. It's concerned with obedience. We continue. Okay, verse 8. That's what happened next. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, <laughs> Look, look, look. <laughs> The people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. 1-800-WAM-WAM. <laughs> we'll see ourselves here in a moment, though. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. They will, es they will escape from the country. So here's what's going on. The land of Goshen, right here, is where the people of Israel, this is somewhere where it's at, right in there. That looks like scrambled eggs, yeah. <laughs> right in there is where the land of Goshen was. Immediately, to the north and to the east, let's give them a different color, right in here, were the people of Canaan. And to, the Egyptians knew the people of Canaan as the shepherd kings. And this was this loosely organized, sometimes more organized through treaties and um, alliances. This was an organized, feudal kings, essentially, the Canaanites who come up in the Bible again because the people of Israel are gonna have to conquer the Canaanites. Uh, a feudal system that were constantly bugging the Egyptians. And so the people of Israel were right in between them and the Canaanites. And they were on good terms relatively with the people of Israel, the Hebrews who were there. So their concern was, as they grew in number, that they, they understood and knew that the people of Israel also had a shepherding heritage that they would see themselves more in the eyes of the shepherd kings of the Canaanites and they would align themselves with and then seek to overthrow Egypt. And so fear is born. The Egyptians despised these people, the, the shepherd kings, the Canaanites, and began uh, to be afraid that the shepherds of Goshen, the Israelites, being so large in number, would join with them to seek to overthrow the power of Egypt. Listen. A tale, <laughs> I did this in the first service too. Tell tale, that's how you say that word. Tell tale sign, there it is. A sign, a sign of the work of the enemy is what we see Pharaoh doing here. Fearing the loss of prestige or power. Never do we see throughout scripture God's followers to be concerned about the loss of prestige or power. But we see this very much, the evil King Pharaoh. And I think we need to notice this impulse in America. As Christians, we should never fear losing power or prestige or privilege. Rather, we should fear being at the head of the table and the front of the pack all of the time. As Christians, that's what we should fear because Jesus says, the first shall be what? And the last shall be what? When Jesus came, he enlivened a whole group of people who were used to being oppressed and having no power. So Jesus reverses things. Also, Jesus says, he says, you know how the lords of the world lorded over their followers, how they make power coming over to be what causes everyone else to submit. He said, you know how they do that. And then he says to his followers, oh, little flock, he says to us, but it shall be different among you. 
That you're going to learn the way of servant leadership from under leadership where you're not always posturing and positioning yourself for power over, but rather submitting to power under, believing that through that judo type love, power under, that redemption will come about. We'll find this in the story. The different way between the kingdom of man, which is about power over and the kingdom of God. Power and prestige is never something for the Christian to grab onto, but something to give away. Hmm. Grabbing and holding on to power is the very impetus of oppression. We'll see Pharaoh eventually fall because of his power-hungry heart. So, out of this fear, we can kind of understand, I mean, looking at the geopolitical situation there, uh, man, Pharaoh's a pretty, actually, wise guy. He sees what's going on, and he's going to do something about it. He designs a program of oppression. So, the Egyptians, this is what they did. They made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramesses as supply centers for the king. His cruelty knows no bounds. Not only will you be enslaved, but you are going to build the very supply centers for my own kingdom and self-aggrandizement. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, <laughs> and more, the more alarmed the Egyptians became. The fear is rising. We're going to lose what is rightfully ours. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. And they were ruthless in their demands. This is the way of evil. When potentially good is rising, a program of oppression is designed to keep the people from rising up. This is what the enemy of our souls has done. The enemy is afraid of your spiritual health and growth. He's afraid of our spiritual health and growth. He was, he's afraid that you would make an alliance with the king of kings who is the true shepherd king. He is afraid that you would participate with the overthrow of the system of oppression that is in our world. He is afraid that you would see through the facade of Western civilization and that you would start to speak to the oppression that exists. He is afraid that you would partner with the captives being set free. He is very much afraid of that. And so he has designed a system of oppression that is subtle, that is sinister, and is widely effective. He is after your death and your destruction. He is after the death and the destruction of the church. He is out for you. Every power in his arsenal, he is coming. He is coming. But what I believe is true is that the favor of God is on us, his people. And just like he couldn't stop the Hebrew people from multiplying, he's not going to be able to stop what is happening here because we are children of the high king. It is not by our worth or merit. It is by his grace alone. And he is raising up a generation that we get to be a part of. And we get to be part of it. You're being called into that. But he wants you, the enemy wants you to be a slave. Slaves lose their sense of purpose because they're just going through the routines that have been presented to them. And it could be that that's your experience. You're going through the routines that have been presented to you by our world and you're realizing it is all for naught. It's a lie. There's something more that's going on, but it seems like I'm just supposed to keep doing this thing. And ultimately, people end up in retirement with a lot of money. That's the dream of our world. And they have a lot of money to spend to go to places where they feel their emptiness just for a moment. But the reality is they've been filling their lives with the lies of the enemy. That is not the system that God has created for us to live into that. We 
We are citizens of heaven, not citizens on a luxury cruise or liner. That is what we are living for, something far better. Something far better. Slaves become automatons because their masters fear. I, I couldn't not do that. I couldn't say yes to you. I couldn't, that, that would require a lot of me. That is the master, that is the, the master with the, with the whip over the slave saying, if you dare step out of line, if you dare take your identity and what it is in Christ, if you dare to rise against the oppression of the world, there's a whip coming your way. That is Satan himself speaking fear to you. The perfect love, the perfect love of Christ has cast out all fear. That's what scripture says. Slaves lose what is true because they have to live into suppression of what is true. But Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth is Jesus Christ, beginning to end. So I see clearly a system of oppression that has been designed by the enemy in our culture. And if you're here with us, you know that we speak to our culture a lot because we, we want for the Christ follower to be able to see the water that we are swimming in, to be able to see the lies that are regularly coming at us in the most subtle and sinister ways. We want us to be able to see it so that we can see what truth is and run after Jesus as hard as we possibly can because that's where there is life. Jesus said that. I've come that you might have life and have it in the full. This is Satan's, some of his program of slavery. It is complex. It is nuanced. If you want a great documentary to watch that will help you to see some of his program here, there's a documentary, I think it's on YouTube now, and it is called The Century of Self. The Century of Self. You can just look that up on YouTube and watch all four installments done by the BBC in 2002, which essentially talks about how we have been trained to be selfish consumers. So here's some more of the program Slavery. Cruel slavery. One, there is no God. The, the foundation point of secularism, there is no God which sounds a lot like how Satan came to Eve when he said, did God really say, did God really? You know, maybe there's not true God. Certainly a true God wouldn't be a revelatory God who would introduce to you through scripture how archaic and inane that is. How stupid. Why wouldn't he be smarter than that? Surely God doesn't exist. The older I get, the more I see God everywhere. We can hardly explain how the eyeball works, let alone the whole cosmos. It's a subtle lie that has taken root. Number two, well, if there is a God... Perhaps she's a benign spiritual being. And if there's mockery in my voice, I mean it. I think it's the mockery of the prophetic voice that is rising up in the church in America. And it is time for people to grab a hold of what is true. God is a revelatory God. He has given us what is true. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth. And there might be others. No, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we don't just get to choose. We get to submit to his revelation. And if you don't like his revelation, then take it up with him one day when you stand before judgment for all the things that you will do. And you have to stand in judgment for the arrogance that has been a part of your life and the pride that besets you and keeps you in the plan of the enemy. The third thing I see is your individual achievement and pleasure are the highest ends of life. We, the whole world is systematized in such a way that it's the cream of the crop rise and those who really get are those who are really worth something and that's what life is all about and it's so subtle and it's always happening that we're just driven that way. That's a lie. The highest ends of life is being obedient to Christ. 
Jesus says, those who do my will, those who follow, those who build their lives on what I have taught you, the rains and the storms of life, cultural impulses, the lies of the enemy will come. But if you're founded on my word and my teaching, you will not be shaken. And the fourth thing, you must achieve in order to be worthy. This creates slaves out of doers. There are those of us who are more prone towards achievement. Okay, slaves, there's always going to be the next thing, always going to be the next thing. For those who are less achievement-oriented, it creates shame. Well, comparison, I'll just never measure up to those people. Christ calls us into a very different conception of worth and identity. I love Trish and our youth leadership team are infusing that into our youth right now through their teaching. Hmm. See, we are people being called out of Egypt, our own Egypt, and in to the chastening, the discipleship, the clarification, the pruning of the desert. Because God has a rescue plan. He has a rescue plan, and we'll see more of that, what that is as we continue. So a few points of application. <clears throat> Number one, continue with the church-wide fast. This is a wonderful practice of the desert where we're saying no to the things that are regular and normal in our culture. For those of you who have given up social media, that is great. Nobody has missed you. (laughs) And perhaps those in your life who you can have flesh and blood contact with are realizing, I have missed you. Do you see? We're leaning into what is real not a digital projection of ourselves. Okay, I could preach in a lot. Question number, or a question for this application. What part of the program of oppression have you bought into? We are like those in Egypt. It is amazing. I mean, you just walk out the door. It's amazing what man has done to create the civilization that we live in. It is amazing. It is awesome. And you can walk out of these doors and be like, you know, I kind of prefer the Egypt that I'm in. But where have you bought into that? Would you do the long and hard work of saying, God, take the Egypt out of me. Work it out of me. Help me to be a person of your kingdom, which never ends. Jesus invites you to the desert with him. If you're familiar with the Gospels, Jesus, when he starts his ministry, is baptized and the, the spirit of God comes on him like a dove upon his baptism. Heaven opens up and God says, this is my dear son with whom I am well pleased. He speaks that identity about what is true. And then immediately the spirit led him to the desert, to the wilderness for testing and temptation. And Jesus says, your identity is that you are loved and with you. He is well pleased. He has done that and accomplished that by his death and his resurrection. He's given you a new identity. And now he says, come my child and come to the desert with me. Come where there will be testing and temptation and trial so that I might reaffirm and show you what is true, Chris said it, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Some people have said, oh, that's where Jesus proved that he was worthy to be our savior. Others have commented, and I love this, that maybe that was the time where everything was clear for Jesus, because it was just him and the spirit in the wilderness, and the enemy had no hold on him as he escaped the way of culture and all the enticements. He had no hold on him, and he was able to clearly say, no more. Jesus invites you to the desert with him. You guys want to hear my joke about the fast? It's cheesy. When we fast, we choose the desert rather than the dessert. One S makes all the difference, yeah. The third thing, men, 
It's not going to come up. <laughs> you have nothing to be impressed with me. It's all God, obviously. Yeah. Come to the desert with us, literally the desert. As we go to Eastern Oregon for our men's retreat, March 1 through 3. <laughs> it's literally the desert. You like that? <laughs> we believe that God is calling a generation apart. We're gathering with several other churches. There's going to be hundreds of guys that go because we believe that God is calling. That's our whole vision or our whole uh, branding is the call. We believe that God has a call in every man's life. A call that our grandkids would say about us, they were trustworthy because they were invested so deeply in God. Where wives would say they were so trustworthy because they were planted so firmly in God. Future generations will be so blessed. Our children now would say you're trustworthy because you're planted in God. God is calling us away to the desert for empowerment, refreshment, and connection. Hmm. Well, this is what we are up to here at New Hope. We're helping people find and follow Jesus and to get on this journey. And Exodus is going to lead the way. And I encourage you in coming weeks to come ready and open. If you want to read ahead, please do. Be familiar with the whole storyline. See things that you haven't seen before, if you've read it before. Another YouTube um, invitation. Go watch all the Bible Project videos on the book of Exodus. They're really well done. Give you an overview of what is going on. It's called the Bible Project. And then there's several about the book of Exodus. Do that so that you're ready for where God wants to take us as we apprentice to the presence of Jesus this year. Yeah, it's going to be really good. I'll pray, and then Devin and the team will wrap us up with a song of worship. It could be that you are here, and you haven't put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ. And around here, you're going to get lots of opportunities to put your trust in Jesus, who is your Savior, who is the one that's gone all the way to the death, all the way to death, so that you can be freed and liberated into this journey. You might be here and you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus. Or maybe you did a long time ago and you're coming back to Jesus. If that's you this morning and you want to make a decision, we think it's the best decision you'll ever make, would you raise your hand right where you're at and we'll agree with you and pray with you as you're making that decision. Just put that hand where I can see it if that's you this morning. Yeah. Got a hand towards the front here. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let's pray with this person as they are saying yes to Jesus this morning. Would you do this? Would you pray with them by repeating out loud after me? Dear God, I've been a slave to this world, to my sin, but you freed me by sending Jesus to die on the cross, to be resurrected. Thank you for your good work on my behalf, on our behalf. You have freed us. I trust you today and forevermore. Holy Spirit, help me. I need your help. Fill me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you can't do this alone. You need a church family. As has already been mentioned a couple of times, we have IM news stations at both exits. On your way out, if you're new, get connected with some of the people at those IM news stations so you can figure out the next steps uh, to get connected. Let's do it together. Devin, team, thanks for leading us again this morning.